This episode of Christmas Past discusses Santa Claus, but not in a way that younger listeners could appreciate. So if there are little ones within earshot, save this one for later, or at least put in your headphones now. Thanks. In the first decades of the 19th century, the world received a new Christmas poem, one as influential as it was delightful. It described a jolly, gift-bringing visitor who rode a reindeer-powered sleigh visiting houses on Christmas Eve. The poem describes his doings, such as filling stockings with gifts and traveling over chimney tops. That gift-bringer, of course, was Santa Claus. And the poem, of course, was Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, which probably wasn't what you were expecting to hear. It was published anonymously in New York in 1821 as a small illustrated paperback titled The Child's Friend, a New Year's present to the little ones from 5 to 12. If you've never heard of that poem, don't worry, I'm going to read it to you at the end of this episode. And these days there aren't many people who have heard of it. But it was an important, if largely forgotten, step in the evolution of the Santa Claus legend. It was the first publication to mention Santa's reindeer and sleigh. It was also the first to describe Santa arriving on Christmas Eve. Previously, he arrived on Christmas Day. And before that, he arrived on St. Nicholas Day, on December 6th, but that's a whole other story. And the book included the earliest published depictions of Santa Claus and showed him wearing a red fur suit. And almost certainly, it provided necessary inspiration for another poem, also published anonymously and also published in New York just two years later. One that would go on to become not only one of the best-known and best-loved poems in the English language, but also one that taught us a lot of what we currently picture when we picture Santa Claus. That poem, of course, was A Visit from St. Nicholas, also known as The Night Before Christmas, written by Clement Clark Moore. Or probably written by him anyway, but we'll come back to that. And it, like its less famous predecessor, would feed into the famous illustrations of the later 19th century and the advertisements of the early 20th century to complete the modern image of Santa Claus as a man in a red suit who delivers toys to children on Christmas Eve, entering houses through their chimneys, and moving house to house on a sleigh pulled by flying reindeer. But the story behind A Visit from St. Nicholas is, in its own way, almost as elusive as catching a glimpse of Santa Claus himself on Christmas Eve. It's a story of somewhat mysterious origins, disputed authorship, combining of legends, and the making of modern Christmas. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. It's hard to overstate the impact of this one poem published in the Troy Sentinel newspaper in the days leading up to Christmas of 1823. Today, we know it mainly as a nice little story told in rhyming verse, read to children before bedtime on Christmas Eve. But in 1823, it was arriving at just the right moment. A moment when the image of Santa Claus and his role in Christmas were just coming together. When American Christmas itself was still largely coming together. The poem was informed by the legend of Sinterklaas, which had made it to New York with the Dutch settlers. And also the writings of Washington Irving. His 1809 book Knickerbocker's History of New York described Santa as riding in a flying wagon and smoking a pipe not too far off from the St. Nicholas we meet in the poem. But maybe more than anything else, it was around this time that Santa Claus was separated from his origins as a bishop and a saint and transforming him into a magical gift-giver. Even the traditional bishop's attire he was normally pictured wearing had given way to the now familiar fur suit, which, ironically, was inspired by the disciplinarian figures like Belsnickel who accompanied St. Nicholas in older traditions. 
Now, it's unclear why Old Santa Claus with Much Delight, which was released with color illustrations from a New York publishing house, would fall into relative obscurity, while A Visit from St. Nicholas, which was published in a newspaper serving only one county in upstate New York, would go viral. But one thing's for certain. Moore's poem really helped to create the American Christmas closer to what we know today. That's Deborah Schmidt-Bach. She's the curator of decorative arts at the New York Historical Society, which holds not only a signed copy of Moore's poem in its collection, but also the desk where he probably wrote it. Regional traditions and cultural legends are one thing, but the print media was unmatched in its ability to promote far and wide a single, standardized vision. And Moore was able to do that at an important cultural moment. The poem kind of emerges from a period where the city itself is changing a lot. And in my mind, the poem is very much an artifact of the 1820s and some of the sort of changes that were happening in New York in general. And an attempt by men of a certain class to construct their history. During the 1810s and 20s, there were significant demographic, economic, and political changes in motion in New York, and in many other port cities along the eastern seaboard. New York had begun a period of rapid northward growth during those years. It started in 1811 with the grid plan that built the city above Houston Street. By 1818, the city was home to a line of packet ships that made regular trips across the Atlantic to England. And all of that, in turn, fed into the growth of the city's shipping and trade industries. And then in 1825, the opening of the Erie Canal solidified New York City's position as the country's largest port city. Now, in the middle of all this, certain elite New Yorkers like Washington Irving or Clement Clark Moore were assessing the past three decades of American life and their own heritages within that recent history. And they were examining and even creating literature, music, and art that addressed some of these changes and concerns. By extension, traditions were also being created to align with these assessments, including the ways in which holidays, like Christmas, were marked and celebrated. So not only did the poem change things by introducing an iconic piece of literature to the Christmas season, but also in a more fundamental way. Because shortly before Moore wrote the poem, New Year's Day was considered the main celebration of the holiday season for Gentile families. Christmas was gaining traction and was poised to take over, except that a lot of Protestants associated Christmas with Catholic influence, and so they weren't on board. Besides, Christmas still had a reputation in England and parts of America as being a rowdy, raucous, carnival-like festival. It wasn't until right around this time that Christmas became more of a family-centric celebration for the home. But by portraying St. Nicholas as arriving the night before Christmas, Moore shifted the focus away from Christmas Day and helped to create a version of Christmas that was less rigorous and more child-centric. Now, speaking of children... Moore apparently wrote the poem in uh, 1822 for his children. During the time after he wrote the poem and read it to his children on Christmas Eve of 1822, the family had a visitor. Uh, her name was Harriet Butler, who heard the poem reading and recorded it in her own personal notebook. It is believed that Harriet Butler is the person who gave the poem to the Troy Sentinel newspaper. Harriet Butler was the daughter of a man named Reverend David Butler, who was the rector of St. Paul's Church in Troy, New York. And Clement Clark Moore came from also a family with very deep religious connections. So he was the son of the Episcopal Bishop Benjamin Moore. Benjamin Moore was kind of a big deal. He gave Alexander Hamilton his last communion on his deathbed. 
He was president of Columbia University. Clement himself was a professor of Oriental and Greek literature. He was a wealthy landowner who made a fortune by developing parts of the estate that he inherited into what's now known as New York's Chelsea neighborhood. And maybe, maybe, that's why the poem was first published anonymously, because he didn't need such a frivolous and unscholarly work spoiling his reputation. But this is where things get just a little muddy. It's not clear why it was submitted anonymously. There are a lot of questions about the precise documentation of the poem and when it went into the public realm. And Moore himself did not claim authorship of the poem publicly until um, about 1838. So between 1823 and 1838, the poem was printed and reprinted in the Sentinel and elsewhere, anonymously. That's 15 years. There are a lot of loose threads here, but the more or less official account was that Moore included a visit from St. Nicholas in an anthology in 1838, published under his own name. He didn't want to include the poem, but his children insisted. And after that, there would be other copies of the poem bearing Moore's name, like the one at the New York Historical Society. So we have a handwritten poem written by Clement Clark Moore that one of the librarians from the New York Historical Society asked him to produce in 1862. The manuscript that we have is signed by Moore and dated. But with so much time lapsed between its first appearance and Moore's claim of authorship, and when you consider that the poem is so different from anything he'd written before or since, it got some people asking, what if it was actually written by somebody else? And as early as 1900, the family of Henry Livingston Jr. was claiming that he, and not Moore, actually wrote the poem. Both Livingston and Moore were dead by then, and again, there weren't any records to go on. But 20 years ago, a professor at Vassar performed a statistical authorship analysis, looking at various patterns and tendencies of a particular author. And his conclusions reignited the debate, because he sided with the Livingston camp. This kind of thing is nothing new in the world of literature. People have asked whether Shakespeare really wrote Shakespeare and so on. But people took this one seriously. In 2014, there was a mock trial staged in Troy, New York, where the verdict was unanimous in favor of Livingston. However, these conclusions are not widely accepted among scholars. It was, well, it was a, an interesting argument. It's been disproven by a number of different people, both um, experts in manuscripts, but also you know, literary historians as well. The evidence is completely plausible that Clement Clark Moore actually wrote the poem. So then let's get back to the poem itself, which, even if it does give us a version of Santa Claus very much like the one we know today, there is one big difference. One that most people overlook, even though it's right there in the poem. He's an elf. A little old driver in a miniature sleigh with eight tiny reindeer. He can fit easily down the chimney. He had a droll little mouth and a little round belly. And if you look at some of the earliest illustrated editions, he appears to be about three feet tall. The widely accepted image of Santa Claus as a full-grown and fully human character wouldn't happen until the early 20th century. And speaking of evolution, the poem we know today is mostly the same one published back in 1823, but some authors have taken liberties along the way. Originally, Santa proclaimed Happy Christmas to All and to All a Good Night, but today it's commonly published as Merry Christmas to All. The reindeers named Donner and Blitzen were also the results of an edit because they were originally Dunder and Blixem, which is Dutch for thunder and lightning. And at least in the edition that I grew up on, the narrator and his wife had just settled down for a long winter's nap, whereas they originally had just settled their brains. Here's the poem as it was originally published in 1823. 
"'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief, and I in my cap, had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now, Dasher now, Dancer now, Prancer and Vixen, on, Comet on, Cupid on, Thunder and Blixem, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with a sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each tiny hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys was flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled! His dimples, how merry! His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry, his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprung to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. And now, here's Old Santa Claus with Much Delight from 1821. Old Santa Claus with much delight, his reindeer drives this frosty night, o'er chimney tops and tracks of snow, to bring his yearly gifts to you. The steady friend of virtuous youth, the friend of duty and of truth, each Christmas Eve he joys to come where peace and love have made their home. Through many houses he has been, and various beds and stockings seen, some white as snow and neatly mended, others that seemed for pigs intended. To some I gave a pretty doll, to some a peg-top or a ball, no crackers, cannons, squibs, or rockets to blow their eyes up or their pockets. Where'er I found good girls or boys that hated quarrels, strife, and noise, I left an apple or a tart or a wooden gun or a painted cart. No drums to stun their mother's ear, no swords to make their sisters fear, but pretty books to store their mind with knowledge of each various kind. 
But where I found the children naughty, in manners crude, in tempers haughty, thankless to parents, liars, swearers, boxers, or cheats, or base tale-bearers, I left a long black birchen rod, such as the dread command of God directs a parent's hand to use when virtue's path his sons refuse. And now for a Christmas memory. This one involves another classic Christmas story, but with a twist. If you've been following the season so far, you know that the Christmas memories will work just a little differently this year, and that's because I'm recording most of these episodes in the summer when it's still just a little too early to ask you to send them. And I'm doing that because come November, we'll be welcoming a new member to the Christmas Past family and to the household here at Christmas Past Headquarters. So in many of these episodes, like this one, the Christmas memory you hear will be from yours truly. But I want you to hear me loud and clear, even as the Christmas season is winding down, I still want to include your Christmas memories this season. There's still time to send one, and there's still a place to include them. As always, the thing to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Now, back in 2014, I spent my last Christmas as a Massachusetts resident. I'd lived there my whole life, but a career opportunity in California came along, and it was time to pull up roots and see what the West Coast had to offer. That Christmas was like most others, except that it was the last time I saw my father, who passed away in June the following year. But my parents and siblings, nieces and nephews, along with many aunts, uncles, friends and neighbors, all gathered at my brother's house for Christmas dinner and gifts and a Christmas piñata. My wife and I would set out for California the very next day, and this was the perfect way to conclude my time as a New Englander. We went home that night to a nearly empty house. We'd sold or donated most of what we owned or shipped it to our new place and packed what little remained into an RV. We were going to make our way to California by taking a good old-fashioned cross-country road trip. And as we drove the RV through the Smoky Mountains, we noticed signs and advertisements for all kinds of tourist attractions. Lumberjack shows, Ripley's Aquarium, a car museum. But one stood out among the rest. Dollywood. Dolly Parton's own theme park. I'll confess I'm not a huge country music fan, but I am a huge admirer of Dolly Parton. As someone who has truly lived a full and accomplished life and who worked to realize the full potential of her natural talents and whose work has touched millions. We didn't know what to expect, but we figured, what the heck, why not see what this place is all about, if for no other reason than to have a novel experience or satisfy our curiosity. And even though Christmas had already passed, Dollywood was still decked out for Christmas. And because it was a cold and damp day, we decided to skip the amusement park rides and go for the indoor fair, which included an abridged musical version of A Christmas Carol, featuring original music by Dolly herself and even featuring a hologram appearance of Dolly as the ghost of Christmas past. It was a thoroughly delightful and sure somewhat campy production. We walked out of that theater with a newfound appreciation for Dolly Parton and an appreciation for what felt like a bonus second Christmas celebration on our way to our new home. Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earl. Thank you to Deborah Schmidtbach, and thank you for listening and being part of the Christmas Past family. Hey, I'm doing my part to grow the Christmas Past family. How about you? Let's spread Christmas cheer far and wide. Telling a friend about this show or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts are quick and easy ways to show support. They don't cost a thing, and they really do make a big difference. 
If you leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card to say thanks. Reach out for details on that. You can drop me a line anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. And visit christmaspast.media for additional Christmas fun like articles, quizzes, infographics, and more. Until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.